Hello, Regeneration. Um, we start our sermon series in Ephesians today. It's uh, been a book on my heart for the past several months to preach and teach from as um, we've been led by Stephanie in our devotionals and staff meetings a few months ago. And, and the issues addressed in Paul's letters, or this particular letter, has been addressing several issues I've needed to address in regards to pastoral care. So we'll be covering the first chapter before we begin our Advent series. And uh, it's crazy to even think Advent series, right? It's, it, it's just really crazy how time flies. I was just in Costco um, even a couple months ago and I started seeing Christmas decorations. It, it's really nutty. But after the uh, Advent series, we will pick up Ephesians again. And the plan is to finish then chapters 2 and 3, and then go into a Lenten series. So that tells you how fast time is going. I want to take just a brief moment to thank Chris, our student ministries director, for teaching last week. And thank you, Chris. Um, Chris gave us a look into spiritual warfare, which we'll look at some more when we get to Ephesians 6. And um, a very large part of the ministry at Regeneration, if you're not familiar with our ministry, is sowing the word. And so anybody that you hear teaching from the pulpit, you'll, you'll hear this constantly. And it's, it's what's been done here every week for the past 20 years. We, we sow the word, and then we hope and we pray that it lands on good soil. In Mark chapter 4, it talks about the parable of the soils and in verse 14 it starts like this the sower sows the word and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them and these are the ones sown on rocky ground the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while then when a tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word immediately they fall away and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of, for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And this is what we're hoping for, is for the word to fall on good soil, for it to bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And when the word is sown, we just don't know what type of soil it's going to land on. We just continually, faithfully proclaim the word of God, and the power is in the word of God to change people's lives, which has been witnessed over and over again in our church, praise God. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Two, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And there, in quotations, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, and even Peter himself is reliant on Scripture to give us teaching. 
continuing on that verse in verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Uh, so important to take in the word of God. It, it's extremely powerful. It, it changes lives depending on the soil that it falls on. So we pray for it to fall on good soil. And I encourage you to read Ephesians regularly and, and to just be prepared for the study. You actually don't even have to read it. You can have others read it to you. Uh, you can have others read it to you in other languages even. I have this Bible app that reads to me in different versions of the Bible, which I love to hear because as I take in the different versions of the Bible, it helps me to internalize it better. Uh, it reads to me in different languages, which I also love, and it, it helps me just kind of take it all in and listen to it from different angles. I've listened to Ephesians and Cantonese and Mandarin and Spanish. Uh, they don't have Toisan, unfortunately, which I would completely freak out about um, if I heard that language because it's a language of my ancestors. It's a dialect of Cantonese. But I have listened to languages that I don't even understand, which... Um, I actually like doing. I just started listening to Tagalog, and it's just because it, it interests me. And so I, I've been listening to Ephesians read aloud to me in Tagalog, and I love it. It's just kind of fun, uh, and you can dub the speed, and, and you can listen to it with background music or not, and you just kind of take it all in over and over again, different languages, different versions, and you'll just get a lot from it. But the thing is, uh, I don't understand Tagalog. I don't understand it at all. It's just fun for me to listen to. I do understand English. I, I understand Chinese. I understand a lot of Spanish. And, and with every language that we do understand, we, we realize there are grammatical rules to the languages. Grammar is something really important to understand, especially the structure within Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in order to understand what Ephesians is saying to us, we need to understand the structure of Paul's letter. Otherwise, things can be taken out of order. And you see, I can, I can pick up different words in Tagalog, like Pablo na Pasto, uh, Cristo Jesus, Efeso, Dios. Those types of words, I can pick those up. But those are only nouns. Those are nouns I can pick up, and even though it's fun to pick up these nouns that I recognize, it doesn't do me any good without understanding the grammatical structure of the language. And so it's similar to when we read this letter to the Ephesians. There's this grammatical structure to understand. Otherwise, it's just essentially reading nouns. So it's really important to look at the structure of Paul's letter to the Ephesians from chapters 1 through 3, and then from chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul emphasizes all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then he ends chapter 3 with this, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 
And so you see the emphasis of everything God has done in Christ Jesus. That that is really important. The end of Ephesians 3. That we have to keep that in mind before we go into Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul writes this in verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why is this grammatical structure so important? Here is why. Because before you do anything, chapters 4 through 6, before you do any of that, you need to recognize all that God has already done in chapters 1 through 3. You need to recognize that first. And whatever we do, whatever we become, in those instructions from chapters 4 through 6, is because of what has happened in chapters 1 through 3. You see, it's all because of what God has done in Christ Jesus that we then do these things in the second half of the letter. The first half of Ephesians is these first three chapters where Paul takes that entire span of that letter to explain the wonders of God's provision, the wonders of God's plan. And if we don't understand this structure that he's written in, there's this real danger of just jumping into chapter 4. And what Christians are supposed to do. What Christians are supposed to become. Do you see the danger? Do you see the danger if you just go share the gospel with somebody, but you're not really sharing the gospel of chapters 1 through 3. You just jump into, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to stop doing. And this is what you're supposed to become. Do you see the danger in that? And this is what a lot of people have done. And this is why a lot of people have this bad taste of Christianity in their mouth. Because you, you talk to people and, and all you're doing is you're telling them the things that they're not supposed to do. And the things that they're supposed to do. But you've left out the grace and the love of God. You've left out chapters 1 through 3. And you've just jumped into chapter 4. That second half without knowing the first half, what God has done, why God did it. And if you go straight into chapters 4 through 6 without knowing the most important half, the first half, you're going to get really discouraged. You're going to get really frustrated with this out-of-order story about God and the life you're supposed to live. This really important gospel story which is a huge part of chapters 1 through 3 and not just chapters 4 through 6. And you might get to thinking that all Christianity is is doing the things we're supposed to do and stop doing the things that we're not supposed to do. And to be this so-called Christian without thoroughly understanding who God is, how much He loves you, why He loves you, so many people approach Christianity as a religion of doing just to find out that they can't do it. And the reason people can't do it is you've skipped the whole divine portion of chapters 1 through 3. You've skipped all these chapters where God does 
things reveals himself and that there's a divine intervention and you just simply just don't understand the language you've just picked up different nouns specifically from chapters four through six and so you've picked up the who when why where why uh, what hows and all the different types of nouns and all those types of information just reading chapters four through six but you've missed the all-important chapters one through three and in the first half, you'll notice that all the verbs in chapters 1 through 3, except for one, they're all in the indicative. And it's really clear in these first three chapters what God has done in Christ Jesus. It's, it's clear in the verses we're looking at today. Check, check it out. Look at verse 3. Blessed us. Verse 4. Chose us. Verse 5. Predestined us. Verse 6. Blessed us us you see that God is the one doing all of this we haven't done anything yet that's not till chapters 4 through 6 but we're, we're given instructions later and in chapters 1 through 3 it's all God it is God who has done is doing will do and this is something we really need to understand we can't tell people all the things that they should stop doing we what we should really do is stop shooting on people all the time that's what we really should stop doing and we need to share with people what God has done what God does what God will do tell them chapters 1 through 3 before you start sharing with them chapters 4 through 6 otherwise it'll be really frustrating it'll be really discouraging chapters 1 through 3 are all indicative verbs except for one and then when you look at chapters 4 through 6 they all become imperative verbs and that's where the instructions are given on how to be a godly husband how to be a godly wife how to be a godly child parent worker employer but you can't skip the first half of who god is and why god did what he did through christ jesus and just skip over to the second half on how we are to live and that's how paul writes the letter it's in this particular specific grammatical way that we have inductive actions of god first before we have the imperative responses in four through six now another really important piece to keep in mind between these two halves is who we are in the first half it's who we are in Christ Jesus in the second half it's who we are in Christ Jesus while we're in our Ephesus so for us who we are in Christ Jesus while we live in our respective cities and we are citizens of the kingdom of God while we are citizens of our respective countries. And keep in mind, Ephesus was a very, very dark place for Christians. Christians were tolerated, but they weren't looked upon favorably. People worshipped Diana. People were very involved in the occult. It's what ruled the religious life of Ephesus. You can visit Ephesus uh, whenever they lift the COVID ban, which I think is now because I think Turkey allows Americans to go there. So you can probably go there now. But back then, people lived in a society just as we live in ours that are tolerant of Christians, but they're not really 
all that well accepted because they're those people that uh, they say that they're in this world, but they're not really involved because like in Ephesus, they have this graffiti on the ground that you can even see today where they were pointing to brothels that they would, they would, they would sketch on the ground and scratch on the ground to show you and point people because it was a, a port. So they would want to show the sailors, you know, where the brothels are and, well, Christians weren't a part of that because Christians were also part of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Which is why Paul writes about the armor for the spiritual warfare we face wherever we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He writes that in chapter 6, which Chris talked about last week. And we're not removed from the spiritual battle. We're not removed from our Ephesus. We're in it. We're in chapters 4 through 6, but we are assured of our victory in Christ Jesus in chapters 1 through 3. Living as Christians in a dark place like Ephesus, like where you and I are living, where you and I are a minority, aren't we? And in the grand scheme of a city, we aren't all that powerful, are we? But it's not we who are powerful anyway, it's the gospel. And what the gospel has done in our lives. It's who the gospel has made us that is powerful. In this letter, you'll, you'll find out that you know, as you read, it's addressed to the saints. Namely, people set apart in Christ Jesus. Set apart for his divine purposes. Not so much what we do as saints, but what Christ Jesus has done as God. See, we as Christians, we don't toot our own horns talking about how great we are and how much good we've done. We recognize the amazing grace of God and what God has done. We recognize who we are and who God is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So we are these saints. We are these new creations. And it's nothing of us to boast about because we didn't do anything to get that. God did this. And to Ephesians now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And it won't be until chapter 4 where we read about that faithfulness in Christ Jesus and how that is practiced. That before we do anything, the Apostle Paul writes about the new life we have in Christ Jesus in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul writes about the, the spiritual community founded upon Christ Jesus, that there are no Christians who live solo lives. We live in community with one another. And then it's not until chapter 4 where we read about how we live in that community, the actual practical steps. And the Christian in Ephesus, just like any of us, was surrounded by a plethora of moral dilemmas. Surrounded by sexual chaos. And it's not until the latter half that Paul addressed how to live as a godly person, a godly wife, a godly husband, a godly single person, and, and not live how the world directs you to live. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this great security in the gospel in that God blesses us with peace through grace. 
It's the grace of God that gives us peace even when there's nothing peaceful within us or around us. Peace that God made us His own. He made us His own even when there's nothing about us that deserves His grace. Grace, which means the unmerited favor of God. This unmerited favor of God, this grace, is all throughout chapters 1 and 3. It's where our everlasting salvation springs up from. And God loved you before you did anything. And it's His grace that gives us peace with God and with each other. And boy, can we use this. We can use peace with each other. No matter what our differences are, gender, race, socioeconomics, politics, whatever differences we have with each other, God's grace gives us peace with each other. Did any of you watch the debates this past Thursday? Or everything leading to those debates? I wouldn't say that that is peace. That that is peaceful. You see, there are no political answers for this world regardless of who is in office. Thank God He is sovereign. That no matter who's in office, whoever gets elected in November, thank God it will be in Him that all these racial issues that we have will no longer exist. Thank God that it will be at the foot of the cross that all forms of injustice will submit to the precious blood of Christ. That all of our differences will be brought together and dealt with once and for all under God. Peace is only found in one place. At the cross of Christ Jesus. At the cross of Christ we are given blessings. Blessings in exchange of once being dead in our trespasses and sins. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. Carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How does one come to have a saving faith in Christ Jesus? How does one awaken and become a believer? How does this even happen? It's not something you and I do. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do things with this newfound truth that we have. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Christ and our Christian faith builds on the power of God, not on our human wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5 through And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now back to Ephesians, verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you notice that this begins with God. Now I'm sure you've heard of the idea of people searching for God, that they're looking for God. This is not so with Christianity. We don't find God. The Bible shows God calling out to us, that God is looking for us, that God is the one who initiates. He initiated blessing. So what does blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ mean if God is the one who blesses? It means for us to declare God's greatness, to, to speak well of God. Now why do this? Because he speaks well of us in Christ Jesus through Jesus Christ. He blessed us, we bless him. He blessed us with his will, his plan, his purpose. And he's the source of blessing. You look at the latter part of verse 3 there. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now what are these heavenly places Paul writes of? It's what he wrote about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's this unseen world of spiritual reality. Those are the heavenly places. How do these blessings then become ours? Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That God chose us, which is just a mystery because we don't operate like this at all in our world. We tend to reciprocate. We tend to earn. We tend to base our reactions and responses on merit. We don't tend to live with grace. But it's because God chose us. We didn't do anything. It's grace. Now it's not to say that you don't have any agency in choosing. We do have responsibility for the choices we make. But we also need to recognize that there's God's sovereignty. Now some people might have a difficult time accepting both. How can God be sovereign and we have choices at the same time and they want to choose one over the other, but I don't see a need to choose one over, the, one over the other. I believe in God's sovereignty and I also believe that we have a responsibility for our choices. And if you don't believe that, that's your choice. But scholars and theologians who are much, much smarter than I have been debating this topic of election. This topic of being chosen or choosing. They've been debating this for centuries. And I'm not going to settle this in your mind in, in a sermon. You can study this on your own until you've reached your own conclusion. I have done a fair amount of study 
on this on my own and also through my seminary class, Theology 501. I've read a fair amount of theology about this. I wrote a major paper on this, which was a third of my grade. And in my conclusion, I believe both, as I see evidence for God's sovereignty and I also see evidence of our choosing. Now, I got an A- minus in the class, so maybe you might want to listen to a person that got an A, but that's what I believe. Do I believe God chose me? Absolutely yes. Why? He loves me. It's the same, same reason why he chose you. It's mysterious. Do I believe I have a responsibility in my choices for and against God? Absolutely. Just like you do. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Should be. Not that we are. Not that we are holy. Not that we are blameless. But we are becoming holy. We are becoming blameless. That we can't live however we want to live. And the evidence of being chosen is your holiness. So if you are habitually, continually in sin, that is contradictory to being chosen. Because holiness is a sign of being chosen. It's not your ability to defend Reformed theology or your ability to articulate your soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. The sign that we've been chosen chosen by God, is that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Not living however you want to live, but as how Christ would live if he were you. Now maybe you've witnessed people get into theological arguments about things like uh, eschatology, like uh, the, the study of end times, eschatology. But the thing is, is what good is all of this argument if you don't live and if you don't love like Christ, if you're not conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the end of verse 4, you'll notice a, a period before in love. Now in the Greek, it's, this is just like one long run-on sentence. There's no punctuation there between verses 4 and 5. So you can read it as that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, or it can be read attached to verse 5. In love, he predestined us, which is the version of the Bible we have. is kind of tricky because they put in love in verse 4, and then the punctuation, the period is before in, but then verse 5 doesn't begin with in love. It begins with he predestined. So I think the guys just were like, uh, we're confused. We don't know which is which, and we're just split it up like this, and people, I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, the latter seems to make more sense to me. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he adopted us to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, God knew that you and I, we would rebel. He knew Adam and Eve would rebel. Yet he still created them. He still created us. Why? Love. Love. God's love for us goes beyond creation. Think about this. His love for us was Jesus Christ, His only Son, sacrificed for us. 
It wasn't just to create us. He, he had this plan, this eternal plan already in place. It's more than just creation. It is redeeming a creation that rebelled against him out of his love. That we were chosen before creation. He already knew that about us. We were predestined to be sons and daughters by adoption. We were chosen by free grace given to us, given all the privileges as his child. In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God initiated love. We didn't. How did we come to be at this very moment to where you're listening to these words? And we think about this. Who was it that helped bring you to this moment of having a relationship with God? What was happening around you when all these formative events were going on that brought you to this place to hear how much God loves you once again? And if you go back to the origins of your Christian story of the people who led you to this place, of the events that led you to this place to have a relationship with God. You'll trace it back to God initiating love for you. He always had it there for you, presenting it to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your gift of grace, wondrous, amazing, extremely generous. It's the God you are. Gracious, merciful, generous, loving, peace-filled God who wants all these wonderful things for us. And even though you saw how rebellious we are, we will be. You set the plans in motion before even the creation that Christ would redeem because you love that much. You didn't create, you didn't have creation just for a simple pleasure to look at or, but we were a treasure, a treasure to be redeemed by your only son. God, thank you for your love and your sacrifice. Please help us understand chapters one through three before we start imposing these things of verses four through six on people that don't even understand chapters one through three. God, give us wisdom on how to present your love story to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take out your communion elements and let's take this together. The bread symbolizing the broken body of Christ. This was planned before you and I were even created, before humanity was created. That Christ would redeem us. Because he knew that we would rebel. He knew that we would fall. And yet he sent his son because he loves us. Let's take this in remembrance of Christ, of God's love for us.
the fruit of the vine, Christ's blood shed for us, symbolized in the fruit of the vine. Very costly, and yet this eternal plan of salvation, this promise of returning for us, and that we are to do this sacrament until his return. So let's take this together in remembrance of Christ. Lord Jesus, we await your return. Thank you for your promises and these faithful promises that you've made that are shown over and over again to be proven true in your word. Please keep us strong, anchored in your word, reliant on your spirit until your return, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.